This is Chapter 74 of the WCBS Author Talks podcast. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. Coming up, a new thriller that puts the math geek in the driver's seat. We find out what it was like to work on a New York City ambulance in the 1960s, and we'll wrap up our summer beach read series. In most action-packed thrillers, the math genius is the supporting character who helps the tough karate-chopping protagonist with the tech problems. But in his book, Flight of the Fox, author Gray Baznight turns the tables. We recently chatted about the role reversal and what it's like to invent alternate histories. Your book opens up fast and it just keeps on running. Why don't you tell us a little bit about it? Oh, sure. It's a political run-for-your-life thriller featuring basically an everyman protagonist, an everyman central character who suddenly has black ops teams of hitmen trying to kill him, and he doesn't know why. And it all kicks off at his pied-a-terre, his uh, weekend house in Bethel, New York, which is where, of course, the famous Woodstock Rock Festival took place. And from there, he runs down the entire East Coast, and it uh, culminates in a climactic event down in Key West. Now, along the way, he finds that the reason why these mysterious teams are trying to do him in has to do with a political motivation stemming from crimes committed by the federal government in the middle and latter part of the 20th century. So it's got a little bit for everybody. It's got some action, it's got some political paranoia, some conspiracy theory, even a little bit of a romance thrown in. I think when people think of run for your life stories, as you called it, they think of Jason Bourne. But uh, Sam Teagarden isn't a highly skilled trade agent. Did did you have to think more about how an average person would handle these black op teams chasing after them rather than someone who might deal with this on a daily basis? You know, I really did. And in fact, the fact that he's not Jason Bourne was my principal motive. Although, of course, it is uh, cut from the cloth, pretty much invented by Robert Ludlum. I love Robert Ludlum. I read all of his books. But this man is a mathematics professor. And he, he's smart. And he has natural intelligence. And he has the will to survive. But part of my motivation was I was thinking, you know, maybe we'll give readers an alternative to all of that karate chopping and all of that gunplay. Because my central character, Sam Teagarden, doesn't know anything about karate. He doesn't possess a firearm. He's just smart. And he knows how to encode and decode encrypted files. So when he finds a mysterious file in his email inbox, he figures out what these people want, why they're chasing him, and then using clever psychology, he kind of turns the game against them in the process. So I was hoping that uh, not only would I give a page turner, but also give uh, readers an alternative to the whole Jason Bourne phenomenon. Nothing against Mr. Bourne. I read all of his novels, and I think they're great. So let's talk about The Secret Diary. It's completely encrypted, and it makes me wonder if you've always had an interest in ciphers or if you dabble in that stuff on the side yourself. No, you know, I really don't. In fact, when I started writing this, I was looking for, in the spirit of Ken Follett, who wrote Eye of the Needle and Keto Rebecca, I was looking for sort of an alternative history or maybe even alternative future sort of fictional book that pegged two events in recent memory that readers would, uh, would enjoy reading about. And so I keyed in on... Well, I guess it's all right to say it. It's not a spoiler alert. I keyed in on J. Edgar Hoover. And 
he was kind of a bad guy there in the middle of the 20th century. And my idea was, what if, what if J. Edgar Hoover was in fact blackmailed and in the process of being blackmailed and through a secret diary, readers and therefore Americans might learn these fictional crimes that were committed by the government in the 20th century. I thought that'd be a lot of fun. And so it had to be encoded. And in the process, it occurred to me, wow, what fun if the reader can even decode this along with my central character as he goes on the run down the East Coast. So there's a little bit of that going on. If you're into word jumbles and crossword puzzles and Scrabble, um, there's some fun there for you. And I know you're just talking about having some fun thinking up this scenario to to put uh, Hoover in. But do you really think there's some sort of big secret in America's past that people would kill to keep secret? You know, <laughs> that's the big question, isn't it, Lisa? <laughs> I, I, I don't I don't really think of it as a probability. But in truth, I do tend to think there is a possibility that we as Americans simply don't know everything that we could know about went on in those years. Um, uh, I remain heartbroken about what happened to President Kennedy, Senator Kennedy, Dr. King. And it's just a, it's an interesting idea to explore, but no, probability, no. Possibility that there were definitely things going on that we still don't know about, yes. And I think that's the general consensus. And it's really that suspicion that propel so many odd conspiracy theories forward. So I thought I'd try to tap into that a little bit. Yeah, and it's also inspired uh, a lot of political thrillers. It has. It has. Um, I, I enjoy political thrillers. And as I said, I, I, I was a big fan of Ken Follett and his uh, World War II-based political thrillers, Eye of the Needle and uh, Tito Rebecca. And I was hoping to sort of emulate that uh, because <clears throat> readers really like it when they can peg on to certain events that they know about. For example, in Eye of the Needle, it's the Normandy invasion. And in this novel, Flight of the Fox, it's about the crimes and, and the horror show of the 1960s of losing two Kennedys and a Dr. King. And Woodstock. And Woodstock. <laughs> Thank you for putting that out. Woodstock, August 1969. My central character, Sam T. Garden, was actually one of the Woodstock babies. He was born there. And this novel is set very slightly in the future. It's set in August of 2019. So he's about to turn 50 years old. And um, the novel actually opens there where Woodstock actually took place. So um, a lot of history going on here. (laughs) And did that part of your story, is that because of uh, something you were always just interested in? Or is it more personal than that? Well, I'm very, I I live in the city in New York, but I'm very lucky to have a small house up in Sullivan County. It's not in Bethel, New York, where Woodstock took place, but it's very nearby. So I've been very aware of um, Bethel and of the Woodstock scene. And of course, in recent years, the Woodstock Arts Festival opened up and I've gone there to see some terrific uh, musical programs. And when I was pegging on to the history of this thing, I just thought, what a great idea to also weave in the 50th anniversary of Wichita, which is coming up in exactly one year from this month. So we've covered hippies. We've covered Hoover. Let's move on to some of the... the science fiction that's in this book, and not just the drones that that like come out full force, first page of the book, but also I'm thinking about those flexi flats. Why don't you there explain you. that and then tell me where that idea came from? 
Well, as I said, there's a little bit of everything in this novel. So, yes, there's a little bit of science fiction going on here as well, because it takes place slightly in the future. And so I had a little bit of fun, not getting too carried away, not like a Jules Verne, certainly not like a steampunk thing. But um, you take existing products and shrink them down even more and expand them to a wider usage. And I came up with this idea of FlexiFlex, which is basically a laptop computer that is the width and breadth and depth of a paper towel. And you can sort of splash it onto any wall or any surface or any desktop, and it functions as a paper, as, as a laptop, but it works like a paper towel. You can roll it up and put it in your pocket. I thought, what a cool thing. And then I thought, well, it, it's so new, I better make it really expensive. So it costs <laughs> a lot of money, and not very many people are affording them because they just haven't worked the kinks out yet. I think you had maybe a, that's in the pipeline. Yeah, you had a $20,000 price tag for four of these paper towel-like sheets, right? <laughs> Yeah, there you go. So my central character, even though he had some dough in his pocket while he was on the run, he decided, I'm not buying one of those. Just give me a plain old vanilla laptop. So can you tell us what you're working on next? Well, right now I'm working on a couple of things. Uh, I I enjoy exploring different genres. I've got a young adult, about a 15-year-old girl who goes on an adventure in New York City. And that one is pegged to the original a treasure Island by Robert Louis Stevenson. And in that young adult version, my 15 year old girl is the Jim Hawkins character who takes on the pirates. I'm also working on a, a sequel to this flight of the Fox. And, um, I'm deeply into the first draft of a, probably what will be about three drafts. We'll see how it goes. Um, I hope it works out because Sam Teagarden, uh, well, I won't give you any spoilers here, but, Maybe readers will have more from Sam Teagarden in the not-too-distant future. Well, we look forward to that. The book is Flight of the Fox, Great Baz Night. Thank you so much for joining us. Lisa, thank you. It's been an honor. New York City in the late 1960s wasn't the shiny, happy, safe place it is now. And Mike Scardino had a front-row seat to the worst the Big Apple had to offer during the summers he spent working on an ambulance to pay for college. He chronicles the horrific things, and we do mean horrific, he witnessed in bad call a summer job on a New York ambulance. And tells our Pat Farnack it's a part of his life he's worked hard to forget. You might find this hard to believe, but at the end of this book, of your book, I wasn't ready to put it down, even though some of the stories were horrible. I wanted a few more stories, so I guess you succeeded. Well, I thank you very much. I, I have more stories, and I'm I'm uh, I'm thinking of a son of bad call, I guess, or something like that. <laughs> I think the feeling was there were almost too many to go in. I think I've got about uh, probably about ten or twelve more stories that might might go in, but some of them could be a little redundant with some of. The ones that are in there, but... Uh, oh, I don't think so. <laughs> I, I don't think so. But you, you got the job uh, because of your dad's connections. He had a, a gas station, wasn't it, in, in Elmhurst, Queens? Do you think that he he thought he was really doing you a favor? You know, at the, the jury's out on that. As I, as I wrote it, I thought uh, that he was probably doing himself a favor as well, you know, because mm. the tuition was... It wasn't a lot of money by today's standards. It was uh, Vanderbilt was nine hundred dollars a year, if you can believe that. It's very, very expensive now. But I had three younger sisters, and uh, I thought uh, after the first year the tuition doubled, and I thought they thought it was getting a little bit high. So he arranged for this job for me. It's kind of a done deal by the time I got back after freshman year. So that helped a lot. 
How do they select people to be on ambulances now? Is it that easy uh, these days? Well, nothing is that easy these days. No. People who work on ambulances, the EMTs and paramedics, and those terms weren't even around when I worked on the ambulance. We were just attendants and drivers. Now they're extremely well qualified. I, I wouldn't go this far, but it's almost as if they're better qualified than some of the ER doctors that were on duty in terms of emergency medicine, because the doctors in those days in the ERs rotated through that requirement. It could be OBGYNs or yeah. uh, orthopedists or whatever. So the people today, I mean, they can treat people. They can give people meds, which we couldn't do. They've got telemetrics, EKGs, uh, uh, everything is on the ambulance. They can actually really, really do things to save lives, which we, we couldn't really do a lot of. Yeah. I, uh, I don't know if you've heard about their, they have mobile stroke ambulances now that just treat strokes, and they're uh-huh. like a million dollars uh, an ambulance. It's incredible. And, I, I, can, I believe that, yeah. But some of your uh, cohorts, some of the guys you used to drive with, probably wouldn't make it, and neither would you in today's climate, right? No, I don't think so. I mean, it really is. It's quite a lot of study. And uh, in fact, it was very interesting. Uh, someone who had worked on uh, St. John's Ambulance in Queens, uh, who's a, a, an EMT captain now on Long Island, actually got in touch with me, and he wanted to know. Apparently, there were four St. John's uh, organizations or hospitals at the time, and they wanted to know if it was their St. John's on Queens Boulevard, and I said, yeah. And so he, he had started in 72, which is just about a year or so after I left, and he had made the transition from attendant to uh, EMT, and he t- took quite a bit of study. He was telling me he went to St. John's and studied and got an associate's degree there, but uh, it's, it's quite rigorous now, and uh, nobody works on any any of those jobs unless they're very well qualified. Now, you said that in your book that you had wanted, at least way back when, to be a doctor, and seeing what you saw on a New York ambulance sort of dissuaded you of going into the medical profession. First, first of all, I felt I found off right away that I wasn't a scientist, and I thought, well, if you're going to be a doctor, you need to be a compassionate, warm, helpful person, and I had been an avid Boy Scout, and I was very altruistic, and I quickly realized you had to be a scientist first, and you had to know calculus and organic and physical chemistry, et cetera, and I just wasn't really good at that. So I, I found out right away freshman year that I that wasn't my uh, strong point, but the problem with working on the ambulance is that on the surface, it seemed like it would be a really good job for a pre-med to have. But in reality, most of the calls we had had very little to do with practicing medicine. Uh, a lot of DOAs, a lot of homicides, people under cardboard sheets and vacant lots and, and, and things like that. And, and uh, none of that had anything to do with medicine. And also, the I started to look at the emergency room atmosphere and, mm-hmm. or, or environment and saw that the people who actually work or treat the patients are in a controlled environment and they don't have to go see how people live or, you know, encounter grotesque situations, you know, on, out in the field. Everything's brought to them and they're more or less, uh, the patient is the variable and they don't have to worry too much about the shock value yeah. uh, except for the patient. Yeah, they probably wouldn't be able to do their jobs if they saw the other stuff that went into getting the person to the ER. I right, don't know, and, maybe. And, and, and also the chaos and, and you know, the major traffic accident or something like that, mm. it's, just, uh, it's not there. Uh, certain calls certainly stay with you, as evidenced by your book, but uh, every one of them bothered me. But uh, what would you say were maybe the top one or two that you would underline and say, this is an example of, of what I saw? Well, the one that probably affected me 
the most negatively and and uh, the most powerfully was uh, happened only after about a week or so on the job. It was, uh, you know, going into a room where a body had been there for about a month, three or four mm. weeks. Mm. And uh, I just couldn't even imagine how that could happen to a person. And I, I have often said, well, you know, of course it was disgusting, but it was also really disappointing. I yeah. just couldn't believe that this could this would be how we might end up. And then I, I realized, well, that's, that's what embalming is for, and people are taken care of at, at death. And, and uh, But it just stayed with me. I couldn't sleep for a week after that. And after that, when I got back to school, I, I, I began to be, I guess today they call it post-traumatic stress syndrome, but they didn't call it anything then. It was just you, you had to, you know, live with it. Yeah, get and over it, right? Get, get over, over it, it. right. <laughs> So, you know, I mean, we all drank a lot in college, but I started a little bit more and it just kind of was uh, hard to focus. And uh, on the other end of the scale, there were some calls which were on the surface not very uh, horrible at all. Uh, I remember one time we had to escort an eight-year-old girl uh, who had uh, psychiatric papers that said she could be admitted, and she didn't want to go, and we we couldn't quite convince her to go, and... uh, we're looking at each other, and she leaned forward to me and said, "You're cute." And I was like, "Oh my gosh!" You know, and I, I had a I had a partner, Jose, who was really a, a, quite a kidder, and he hit me in the ribs like you you dog, you know. And the parents were kind of happy with that, and couldn't figure out what to do. And then I thought, I know what to do. So I offered her my arm, and I said, "You know, I'm going to the prom right now, Lily. Do you want to go with me?" And she did, and that kind of broke my heart. I don't know why. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It, was just, it was just so poignant. And um, and then another time, the other one is not gory. Uh, the one that stuck in my mind the most was, uh, and this was a story that I, I wrote just before I wrote the book. I had forgotten about it completely. And uh, it was a homeless woman. She was about 65 or 70. She'd been just put out on the street by her daughter and son-in-law. And mm-hmm. at the time, there were no shelters. We couldn't take her if she wasn't ill or acting in an odd way, and and uh, the police didn't know what to do, and they said, I, "What are you going to? What's going to happen to her?" Because you know, you you see homeless people all the time, but you never see them at the exact moment that they become homeless, and you wonder what's going to happen. You know, yeah. it, even Robinson Crusoe could look back and say, "Well, I can go out and get all that stuff off the ship and <laughs> make a fort and stuff," but she had absolutely nothing. Oh. And um, my partner, who you know, to his credit, looked at me and said, "How much money do you have?" And I was completely ashamed because I wanted to be the altruistic one and think of that first, but I didn't. And we gave her all our money and uh, we left and, you know, we just left wondering what is going to happen to this person. You just never see them at that instant. You know, is she going to even know what to do to get a meal tonight? That, that was very affecting and it wasn't bloody or gory or, or anything like you would expect from an ambulance story. Yeah. You were on the ambulance for what, was it all four years? Before you all, went into the reserve? All four years. It was uh, every summer after freshman year, and then from the time I graduated in May till January of the next year when I finally got sent uh, to basic training in yeah. the Army. But you could have escaped. Why Why didn't you? I mean, I guess the money was good, right? So you were. it was sort of uh, golden handcuffs, as they say, or well, whatever. It, yeah, it, it was and it wasn't. I mean, I told many people this. I, I'm, I'm only half, I say, I say I was a good Italian boy, but I was only half Italian. My mother was from the South, and I just did what I was told. I mean, I, you know, they said, work on the ambulance, you've got to pay this money. And school did get more and more expensive. Every year it almost doubled. And, and uh, of course, there were all the ancillary expenses, food and travel back and forth and things like that. So it, it got pretty costly. And um, 
it just kind of was something that I fell into every summer. But I wish I hadn't. Uh, of course, I, I didn't want to drop out of school because of, of the war. Nobody wanted to lose their deferment at the time. And uh, I had wanted to go to Queens College, and, and my uh, my mother, being from Nashville, wanted me to go to Vanderbilt, yeah. which was, uh, you know, there's a big difference in cost there. So. But a div- big difference in experience, too. Yeah, it, it was. I mean, I had, uh, you know, of course, we had visited Tennessee a lot, and I loved it down there. And, and uh, we even had lived there when I was in junior high and then moved back to, to Queens. And, you know, I had a creek not far from my house. It was like paradise. Yeah. And, Early on, we had moved from Elmhurst to Bayside, and then when we moved out there in 1954, Bayside was like the country. It's on the yeah. eastern edge of Queens, and it was just really nice, vacant lots and baby boomer kids all over the place. It was, it was very nice. And then to come back even from Bayside to uh, Elmhurst was uh, not a happy experience. It was, you know, Elmhurst is, is there are plenty of people live there, and they love it, and it was, it's very utilitarian, and it was very... Uh, kind of mean streetsy when in those days. Yeah, yeah. Well, the experience though it makes you uniquely you, right? So uh, it, you can't really say that it it ruined your life, or do you think it did in in some ways that you would rather not have seen a lot of the things you saw? I I, I would rather not have seen a lot of the yeah. things I saw, but. You know, I, I've often asked myself this, and I, I don't know if it would have ruined, if my how my life would have been if I hadn't done it. You know what I mean? I, it's just yeah. one of those things where that's that's what happened. And I do think, and this is one of the things I left out of the book, which I kind of wish I hadn't. One of the reasons I did poorly every year when I went back to school was it was quite an emotional letdown to to go from such an adventure, which it really was in a lot of ways, to ordinary everyday life. I was, you know, it's a, it's a very uh, it's an exciting job, not in, a, in an especially good way, but it's it's real life. It's very intense, and um, going from that back to school, I was like, well, is, you know, you remember the song at the time? If you remember the song, Peggy Lee, is that all there is? Sure, well, sure. Kind of, you know, it's kind of like, is this all there is? I I, I was used to uh, that kind of an adventure, and that's kind of what I wanted to do in the book. I, I loved books like uh, Life on the Mississippi by Mark Twain and mm-hmm. uh, Three Years Before the Mast, and I grew up reading these books. My grandmother used to get me called. You are there. It's the uh, it's the uh, Crusades, and you are there. And yeah. we were always putting somebody in that role. And uh, I I really loved and Jack London. I was crazy about. So uh, it, it it really I could see that side of it. And uh, you know, but it was exhausting and and uh, it was horrible. And it made me very depressed for the rest of my life. And again, I don't know if I wouldn't have not been depressed. Would have not been depressed. <laughs> Oh, I Otherwise. think I think you 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 had to have been uh, you would have been just a husk of a, a dried out husk of a person, <laughs> you know. Uh, yeah. Otherwise, but yet, you know what would impress me the most was that you met your wife to be on the third day of college, and even though you went through such horrific stuff that you saw, you still had the the brains to stick with her because she was a little bit of normalcy in your crazy life, don't you think? Or did you look at it some other way? No, absolutely. Barbara was the light at the end of my tunnel. Oh, man, yes. uh, you know, that's that's another reason I stayed in Vanderbilt. It was like the third day I met her, I I said, wow, this is it. And and, uh, could not uh, could not see leaving. So that that's and again, when you asked me before, you know, you had asked me why I stayed on that job. Mm-hmm. Well, I really did want to stay in Vanderbilt. Uh, rather, I, I would have readily transferred to Queens College to cut the financial burden and 
to have been able to play a little bit in the summer, but uh, you know, I, I really wanted to to uh, stick with her, and uh, luckily we have. We've been together all this time, and uh, you know, it was well worth it. But that kept me going. I have yeah. to say, fabulous. Well, have you ever ridden in a, in an ambulance as a what do you call it, patient? Yes, I have. I had actually had a, a a heart attack in November. Oh my goodness! Yeah, Are you okay? Yes, I am. Thank you. No, no permanent damage. It was a really good wake-up call, and uh, um, but I knew I knew what was having. I was having it, and uh, Barbara took me over, and uh, they they uh, you know fixed me up the next day, and I felt great after you know I hadn't felt that good in years. But I was in one of these ambulances, and uh, uh, I was I was stunned at all the stuff. I, I kind of knew what was in there, you know. And uh, but but uh, and you said, "Don't put me in that thing." Don't put me in that thing. Exactly. But I, I was stunned at the bill. It was like it was something like eighteen hundred dollars, and it was oh. just a transfer. Wow. Um, yeah. And uh, basically, we were free. I mean, people would call us up. They they knew exactly what to say to get a ride to the clinic which they weren't supposed to be using an emergency 911 ambulance for, but they, they were able to manipulate the system and, and do that. And, you know, you can't begrudge someone that. I mean, it, it's no. like, okay, they, they were poor and they, they couldn't get there. Right. But uh, it was quite a, quite a bit different. Yeah, it's amazing. Wow. Well, what, what a, a trip we've taken together talking about this. I, I thoroughly enjoyed the book, and I don't know why I didn't think I would. I, I don't know if it enjoyed actually is the right word for it, so just, but it was very... It. I, I find myself stopping myself when I say, I hope you enjoy it. I'm like, ah. Uh. And it's nice when you pick up a book and you think, ah, and I loved it. I really appreciate that so much. And I've got kind of a, a mentor in James Patterson. I he, saw he, that. Well, he and I had worked together for, for years uh, in advertising, and... Uh, he was actually at Vanderbilt uh, in graduate school the year I was a senior, although oh. I, I don't think we met except at a, you're going to laugh at this, there was an English department sherry party, and I think I met him, uh, how, how archaic is that, right, a sherry party? <laughs> I but love it. We got along very well, and uh, he was the creative director at J. Walter Thompson, and he hired me there. I had finished, uh, I was working on the book, and I didn't, I didn't even, think to bother him because, you know, he is way, way up there. So I, I was writing all of my friends on um, LinkedIn, and uh, one of my friends said, well, why don't you, you know, he's the master, why don't you write him, here's his assistant's name. And uh, so I wrote her, and uh, he said, okay, well, send me a couple of chapters. And he liked them, but he said, I, I don't know what I can do for you, but if you think of something, let me know. So I said, well, uh, about a week later, I said, if you like it, when it's done, if you wouldn't, mind writing a blurb, that would really be great. I would appreciate it very much. But okay. I sent him the manuscript, and he read it basically in a day or two and, and uh, said, well, uh, you wrote me that nice blurb and said, you know, if you want, which is yes, <laughs> I can get it to an editor at Little Brown and wow. uh, see what happens, but I'm not promising anything. I said, yes, yes, please. He said, well, think about it for a week. I said, yeah, no, I'm, I'm good. <laughs> I don't have to think about it. <laughs> So uh, they li- they liked it, and then uh, they they bought it. So totally yeah. unforgettable. I love that blurb. I mean, it says it all, right? Totally <laughs> unforgettable. <laughs> it is too. It is, too. Well, I hope you don't mind that we didn't get into some of the nitty gritty, but I think it was more interesting almost to hear the backstory and and what happened to you and all that kind of stuff uh, no, rather than get gory. Yeah, no, I, that, that's fine. I, I uh I uh, reread it, and uh, you know the funny. The funny thing was, that I was thinking, well, it might be cathartic 
to get this all off my chest finally and put write it down and everything. But actually, it, it was completely the opposite. I felt I got went into a big deep hole yeah. writing the stories and reliving them, and uh, they were they were so vivid to me. And seeing it in words was. Uh, was not not the happiest thing. So it's probably good that we didn't get into the nitty-gritty. Maybe you had to go there to sort of exercise (laughs) some of the bad stuff. Now you can let go of it. You know, that's what they say anyway. I think so. I mean, I I think, you know... uh, you know, I hate to inflict it on other people, but these are things that happen to people. This is real life, and and, uh, uh, it was different in those days. But in a lot of ways, it was not different. Life and death is still, you know, it's still the same. Well, certainly an engrossing read. It's uh, Bad Call, A Summer Job on a New York Ambulance by Mike Scardino. Thanks so much. I do appreciate it. As another summer comes to a close, seriously, where did it go? We wrap up our Summer Beach Read series with the latest book from an author synonymous with the genre, Mary Kay Andrews. The New York Times bestseller fills us in on her beachy-titled new novel about love, old secrets, and lasting friendships. The High Tide Club is about a group of longtime friends, their girlhood friends, and the book starts with them at the age of 19, and then one girl is 14, and they're on a barrier island off the coast of Georgia, and it's owned by Josephine Bettendorf's family. And when the book opens, October of 1941, they are digging a grave. Um, The story fast-forwards to the present day, and um, Josephine has gathered this group of friends together, and over the years, they fall out. And then in the present day, Josephine reaches out to a young um, single mom. She's a lawyer, and she practices law on on the mainland near that island. And over the course of a few meetings, she tells her this story of old friendships and secrets and betrayal, and there's a long, unsolved uh, murder. Are old friendships better subjects to write about than something like old loves or long-lost loves? Uh, I don't know that they're better. I think they're intriguing. They're they're sort of the meat of this story and, um, you know, how women's friendships are so deeply felt, I think, that they're, uh, they make for good drama. And um, in this story, the setting is almost a character in the story because it's a, it's a fictional barrier island off the coast of Georgia, but it's, it's inspired by a real island. And, um, uh, you know, during the um, pre-Civil War days, there were cotton plantations on those islands. And uh, the, uh, some of those islands are today, um, they're lived on by descendants of uh, slaves who worked on those plantations. And after the war, the government gave them small plots of land on those islands, and stuff happened over the years. So um, I think setting for me is always uh, really important in my books. This isn't the first book I've read this summer that's set in this part of the country. Why do you like to set your books here? I don't know any other place. I've always lived in the South. I grew up in Florida, and I've lived in Georgia and, and briefly in North Carolina my whole life. Um, we have a vacation home on Tybee Island off the coast of of, of Savannah. So we, I've spent a lot of time there. And I think it kind of, I tell people Savannah is a place that gets under your skin like a fungus, and you just don't get rid of it. It's very evocative. It's a place... Uh, where history lives, and um, you know, like the song, sound, like the song says, old times there are not forgotten. 
I think for you, better or for worse. <laughs> I think you're the first person to give fungus a positive association. <laughs> well, you know, so and you know you can kill it, but it always comes back. <laughs> So you were a journalist before becoming a best-selling author. How different is that writing process for you? Well, I get to lie is the biggie. Um, you know, when I was a journalist, I was constrained by the truth, which is terribly inconvenient when you have a vivid imagination. <laughs> but I think uh, training as a journalist gave me so many tools to spend, to to use when I started writing fiction. Um, It taught me how to listen very carefully so I would be accurate in my stories because, you know, unlike what this current administration would like people to think, journalists care deeply about accuracy and truth. And so one of the skills you develop as a journalist is listening closely to how people talk, what they say, and the the nonverbal cues they give. And then I think plot, it teaches you how to plot because as a journalist you have a constrained amount of space to tell your story. And so, um, you know, plotting is is the blueprint of every story. So I think good journalism teaches you to do that. And then um, it also teaches you the importance of setting. And setting is so important to my books. I want to put my readers in the world of my books. So in the High Tide Club, I want them to feel the waves lapping at their ankles. And I want them to feel the salt air and smell it. And I want them um, to, to put their toes in the sand and, and feel all of those sensations so that I want them right with my characters in the book. It's like going on a mental vacation. I hope so. And so a lot of people do take your books on vacation with them. And you're known for the beach read genre. What do you think makes a good beach read? Well, some of the elements I just talked about, I think a plot that moves. I want to write a page turner, and um, I want to take my readers um, on an escape. And um, maybe maybe they don't get to go to the beach for the summer. Maybe they, you know, they're just out on their back porch or in a hammock or, you know, anywhere. But um, I want to take them someplace they haven't been before or someplace they'd like to go or someplace they maybe remember fondly. And then I, the, the pace has got to be fast. You can't get bogged down. Things have to happen. So I, I, hope, I hope that that's, you know, I hope I've figured out what makes a good beach read and characters you can relate to and cheer for. So I think if you have those elements, you've got a great beach read. But it doesn't mean um, empty calories because there's, I, there's a lot of meat on, on the bones of my stories, I think. No, I totally agree with you. I think sometimes beach read is a negative connotation, but it doesn't have to be. No, no. I think, you know, you can you can certainly, um, your brain does not have to take a vacation when you go on vacation. So I want to give my readers something to think about. And there's a lot to think about in this book, Old Betrayals and Questions of Race and Legitimacy. Um, and family, um, all, of those, all of those elements are important to the plot of the High Tide Club. So a final question. A lot of your readers take you on their vacations with them. What do you take on your vacation? Um, I like to listen to audio a lot, especially on long car trips. So I just listened to an amazing um, novel by an English author. Her name is Kate Morton, M-O-R-T-O-N. That book was called The Lake House. Um, I love mystery, so I'm a big Michael Connelly fan. Um, next up, I'm going to read um, Daniel Silva's new book. I'm a fan of his work. 
Um, I love uh, Eleanor Lipman, L-I-P-M-A-N. She writes funny, wry books about forgiveness. Um, uh, a favorite uh, recent book was called You, Me, Everything by Catherine um, Isaac. So I, I've always got a, a loaded up nightstand and, and a queue in my um, Audible app. You're just like the rest of us. <laughs> Well, Mary Kay, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. And that's our show for this week. Next week, we talk to the woman breathing new life into the characters made famous by the one and only Agatha Christie. Until then, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS880Books. We also look forward to hearing from you. So email us at books at entercom.com. That's books at entercom.com.